Maybe don't know. Maybe don't. This time, 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 What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to episode 150 of the Power Company podcast brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. 150 is a big number, especially considering if you go back to the first, I don't know how many, 10 episodes, I'm like, I don't know if this thing is going to continue or not. But here we are, several years later, 150 episodes in, and... We're very quickly approaching our millionth download. It will most likely happen this week. And uh, Nate just rolled into Lander last night. So Nate and I are going to do an episode that's a little bit different for our millionth download. So be on the lookout for that. Share this thing with all of your friends and you'll, you'll get that episode sooner, frankly. So... I don't have a whole lot of news to report this week. I've been kind of on a roll with these podcasts. You guys have heard most of what's going on. I do, however, want to let everybody know that in about a week, the Red River Pump Prep program with Drew Mack will be starting up again, and we've switched it up a little this time. Um, Petzl, as well as Friction Labs, Rhino Skin Solutions, and Evolve, will be offering a scholarship so they'll be paying somebody's way two people actually they'll be paying their way into the program as well as outfitting them with a bunch of gear so those applications and signups for the program will be starting in just about a week so be on the lookout for that details coming soon i'm not going to keep you guys waiting because this episode is a big one, and as you've heard from the last few episodes, I'm busy over here. I got things to do. Today's guest is a legend, uh, Bill Ramsey. If you've ever been to the Red River Gorge, you've definitely enjoyed the fruits of Bill's labor. Um, even if you're not climbing at that level yet, you've looked at them and you want to climb them. That's how Bill's roots are. Roots like Golden Boy... Omaha Beach, The Return of Darth Maul, uh, Transworld Depravity, all Bill Ramsey creations. And frankly, Bill is the, the real deal. I've, I've been lucky enough to be able to watch his career um, continue with him being about 15 years older than I am. He's provided this motivation for me uh, to keep chasing progression which is essentially what bill is still doing and and i imagine always will so bill and i get into a lot of different subjects in this episode i'm gonna let this roll and i've got a lot to say about bill on the other side so let's get into it i did not have any expectation of doing it the day I did it, I mean, if you'd asked me, do you think you're going to do it today? I'm like, no, I would say I've got maybe a 5% chance. Even when you don't feel like you can do something, you can have a pretty good day if you feel good about your effort. Power. Power. This time to build. Power. Power. This time to build. 
nothing. Just a week. Just, just a, a week. week. Short trip, yeah. Did you climb any of the new stuff or just go to old stuff? Uh, no. Uh, they took me to one new crag. It was actually a crag that we had hiked back in like 2001 or something like that. Um, like in that Hell Creek area? or Yeah, I think it's called the Locker Room. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Hugh and... Craig Smith and Snyder and all those guys took me back. It was a really fun day. Mm-hmm. We had a really good time. It's pretty pretty neat stuff back there. Yeah, it's, and there's so much. Yeah. I mean, you know this. There's it's endless. It's amazing down there. how much stuff there is everywhere. Yeah, and it just keeps going. I think I could see further development taking place to the south more. Yep. Um, so yeah, all the way so down to like Cumberland area. Yeah, yeah. That's right. that belt stretches all the way down. Exactly. So yeah, it's just endless. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. Kind of ridiculous, but it's crazy how much is just still right there at the red that's being discovered, just right there. You know, mm-hmm. little hollers and little teeny cliffs and all these different little, little. I can remember I would be spending my I was spending my summers at Smith quite often, and I'd get back in the fall and people would be, oh Bill, we gotta take you to this new cliff, and I'm like, Wiley, there's a cliff back there. And we'd be traipsing through the jungle, and I just would yeah. be pretty skeptical, and then it's mm-hmm. like you'd walk up on the dark side for the first time, and, and then it just like, appears. Holy crap, where did this come from? Yeah pretty amazing amazing yeah did that make your decision to move out to vegas any harder that you knew that there was endless sure uh i mean i definitely missed the red it was so rad and fun to be part of the sort of scene there from the early 90s um but you know that drive was getting to me really i was driving 400 miles each way to climb there and uh, I was getting pretty sick of this winters in South Bend, Indiana, too. For sure. So, yeah. Uh, when the opportunity arose to live in a place where whole, my whole life could be more consolidated in one place, which it can be in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. um, I have no regrets moving out here. Yeah. I really like it here. Um, yeah. I had a hard time with leaving the sandstone behind. Yeah. Um, I felt like I'd put a lot of time in there and was ready for something new, but, but the rock is really, really nice. Yeah. So. I mean... Really, the red is what got me back into climbing. I, I'd taken a, a break um, pretty much from about, I'd say, 86 to 93. Right. Where I'd sort of finished up my dissertation, took my first job at Notre Dame, and um, just kind of thought, well, that's pretty much it for the, my climbing career because there really isn't any climbing in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And Porter told me about the red and sometime in the early 90s I saw him and I went down and I just saw the potential and I saw how amazing these cliffs were and I'm like wow this is really really incredibly beautiful rock first off if you aren't climbing how do you bump into Porter Gerard well I mean I would be doing these <laughs> once a year sort of climbing trips oh for right fun. right so uh, a good friend of mine another philosophy professor Steve Downs had been teaching at Virginia Tech okay. and so he'd been climbing at the new at the new right and, right and he's like hey and I think he had a one-year appointment that year at Cincinnati, actually. Hmm. So it's like, let's, you know, as soon as school lets out, this is like mid-May, let's zip on down to the new. I'll show you this place I'd never climbed at the new. And like, yeah, that sounds great. And of course, he knew Porter. He knew Doug Reed and all those folks. So Gene. So we stayed at Gene's house, and Porter and Doug were staying there. And uh, that's how I got to know Porter. And that's when he started telling me about this area in Kentucky. And I was yeah. pretty skeptical at first. I'm like, mm-hmm. As you should be. Kentucky, you know, I can think of bourbon and horse racing, <laughs> but rock climbing. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but I kind of had a sense of where it was. I think somebody maybe written an article about it by then. So I found it and I just went up to like the military wall. I think it was a yep. flank or something. I'm just mm-hmm. like, holy crap. This is some of the most beautiful rock I've ever seen. Yeah. 
And that I started climbing there, and I really had a great time, and just started going down there. Before I knew it, I was kind of going down there every weekend. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, I kind of got to know the community there, and they started showing me some of the new cliffs. I was basically just kind of getting back into climbing. I took me a while. I started to climb five twelve again, and my goal really at the time was just to climb a five thirteen. That was kind of my big goal. Right. And it didn't seem like it took too long to sort of work up through the grades. I was doing that. I was also spending my summers at Smith where I learned to rock climb in the mm-hmm. mid-70s. And so I was starting to get kind of strong again and uh, going beyond what I was doing when I was younger. And I happened to buy a house that I could build a climbing gym in the attic. And uh, I got Notre Dame to buy a tread wall. There's a tread wall, actually. How did you get them to buy it? Uh, there was a health club that had one that they had bought that I had joined. And it was one of the entrepreneur rock and roll machines, but it seemed like I was the only one using it. Right. And they wanted to get rid of it. So they said, hey, if you just come and take it out, we'll sell it to you for $300 or something. Oh, nice. So like you that. sourced it for them. Exactly. So I'm yeah. like, oh, I know a place where this can go. So they put it in a rock memorial uh, athletic gym. And I started training on that, started to develop some endurance, started setting it up so I could kind of train for the routes at the red. And just, yeah, I just kind of worked up through the grades. And after it seemed like a few years, I'd done quite a bit of the stuff that was there. And that's when I started mm-hmm. getting involved in the development and bolting stuff. Yeah. Do you ever feel like you did it backwards that you should go to the red now that you're older and it's <laughs> friendlier climbing? Uh, I mean, I think a lot of the climbing out here is pretty friendly. Uh, I don't know the climbing here in Vegas very well at all. Yeah. I mean, when you get in, it, the stuff out of Red Rocks is a lot of it's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. It's kind of crimp ladders and things like but that. But that's not the stuff you're no, spending the stuff most in the time limestone, on. Um, it's, it's, it's more interesting perhaps because you typically don't have as many holds as you have at the red. Mm-hmm. Um, the feet are a little more engaged. Yeah. Um, but uh, without a doubt, the Red's an amazingly friendly place. You go to these cliffs and you feel like this was, des- you know, just really natural. This isn't man-made. Right. <laughs> this is pretty much designed for right. climbing, it seems. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I like the kind of climbing that's intellectually engaging, mm-hmm. where there's a lot of stuff to figure out, a lot of um, different sorts of techniques you can use. And the limestone's pretty good for that. The limestone yep. allows you to do a lot of stuff, especially in places like, like Rifle, it seems, where... There's just so much trickery you can do with all the yeah, you have to be really creative and you have to be creative and it's three-dimensional climbing mm-hmm. you know instead of two-dimensional you sort of got all these different things jutting out that you can use in different sorts of ways so i actually really like i typically now i mean i just had surgery so i didn't do it this summer but i usually spend my summers in rifle yep because um, it's just there's so much good stuff there yeah i'd love to spend more time there i've only been a handful of days you know and yeah, but it's a, it's a ideal, good summer spot. It's so. a great summer spot. It's a really fun hang. I've got a little trailer. I just park it up in the canyon. There's usually a good crew staying there in the summertime. All different levels of climbers, all different ages. It seems like there's a pretty good group of older climbers climbing there. So that's really fun. I really enjoy climbing with people mm-hmm. like Lee Sheftel. Um, so it's never a problem finding a partner. Um, I usually climb on Monday, Wednesday, Friday and get out of there on the weekends when it gets really crazy. Yep. And so Good plan. It's, it, and you have different cliffs with different styles of climbing. Um, there's always new stuff going up. So there's always something new to try to do. So yeah, I just, it's a really fun hang. Yeah, for sure. So what I really wanted to like dig into with you is your philosophy of training and climbing, right. because I think it's really interesting and I think it's, a much more common sense approach mm-hmm. than a lot of the current body of research would um, 
lead climbers toward. Right. I think I think the research by design misses a lot of the variables that are in right. place when it comes to climbing. And I think your philosophy hits on a lot of those variables right. that yeah. are hard to measure. Yeah. Um, I mean, to begin with, I've always enjoyed trying to be sort of a self-coached athlete yeah. where I'm trying to figure out how to modify my body that'll <clears throat> get me up a certain climb. And this goes all the way back to high school. I was doing this thing called the Marine Corps physical fitness thing. And I, mm-hmm. I was the only one, I didn't have a coach really to coach me. And right. so I just trained myself basically. And I wound up, I think my senior year, I had the highest score in the country or something like that. But uh, initially, I think we did everything wrong, <laughs> you know, in the sure. 70s and the 80s. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't know anything about warming up. We didn't know anything about training. And so I think the first book that came out that really was uh, sort of took a lot of the principles in other sports and brought them to climbing was Dale Goddard right. and Udo Noon. Performance, like, performance rock, rock climbing. Rock climbing. Yeah. It's still a classic. And it's the first time people introduce periodization and these ideas that you have these different energy systems and things like that. So I picked that up and um, thought, wow, during that hiatus when I wasn't really climbing, I thought it's kind of a shame because um, now it seems like we know so much more about training and how to improve and how to get stronger but I'm not really involved in the sport anymore. It would really be neat to, that's one of the reasons why I think I wound up getting back into it. It'd be really neat to try out some of these, hmm. some actually, you know, scientific and well thought out approaches to training. Yeah. So then when I did get back into climbing, <clears throat> I tried to incorporate some of those principles, but I didn't like the whole periodization idea because I was a weekend warrior at the red. So I didn't want it to be the case that I'm trying to do an endurance route, let's say, but no, these six weeks I'm doing my power phase and I don't have any endurance. Um, Similarly, if I was doing something more powerful, I didn't want it to be the case that I didn't have any power at that time. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, well, I'll just incorporate all of this in like one week, basically. So the training I got into was I would uh, climb on the weekend and then take Monday off and then... I taught, I was teaching on Tuesdays and Thursdays, so I would train Tuesday evening. And that training typically involved fingerboarding and then bouldering in my attic. Mm-hmm. And then I put in a campus board, so it involved some campusing. And p- during this whole process, people were coming up with new things. So I remember, for example, um, when the Hoover brothers first talked about system training, there was right. a really old article. I yep. Yeah, I remember it. it. And I thought, Power well, to waste or something yeah, like that. I could, yeah, I could get that up there. So I built a system while in my attic as well. And what I would do is I would just start sort of bringing these new ideas into my training philosophy. Did you do my, the handstands that the Ho- I didn't Huber the brothers were like, okay, all I'm about? Gonna, I'm going to draw the line of handstands <laughs> right there. I'll pass out, a little blood going to my head. But I did try to bring in some of the other things that I would hear about. And Alan had sent me an entrepreneur uh, hangboard years ago. And yeah. so I put that up and I started doing different sorts of workouts on that. And uh, so I, instead of just, oh, this is a great idea, I'm going to replace what I'm doing with this new thing, I was just like, well, I'll just add it on. So my Tuesday night workouts started to become pretty big. I would go from right. maybe, you know, I think I'd be done teaching and start training around four and it'd go to like eight or nine. So that'd be mostly what we at that time, I, you know, the terminology I never can keep up. But at that time, that was mostly doing what I would call power and power endurance type okay. training. Um, I'd probably do longer boulder problems and, and, and laps and things like that and then campusing and stuff. Then Wednesdays, I wasn't teaching and we had the tread wall at Notre Dame. So that would be my more endurance oriented training. Right. And so I'd go in there. I had a number of routes up. I would try to do, 
do them at different angles. I'd wear a weight belt to try to simulate rope drag and things like that. I would practice shaking out so I could stop it and shake out on a particular hold and I would change the kind of holds I would shake out on. So that's where I came to really appreciate the value of a tread wall in terms of training. But it was also this idea that, okay, now here's the, here's the endurance phase of my training. And then I would take Thursday and Fridays off and then climb again on Saturday. So that's how I approached this whole sort of, or the way I adopted this periodization idea, which wasn't really periodization, but it was sort of periodizing in two days, basically. Mm -hmm. And I found that it, I got progressively stronger in every aspect. So I think that one of the things I've always told people is, well, certainly if you're doing everything each week, um, you're never going to improve one of those, like say your raw finger contact strength right. as much as you would if you just focused upon that. Right. Um, but at the same time, you will make gradual incremental improvements in all of these aspects over time. And then I think I had a conference or something was going on where I couldn't train on Tuesday. So I just said, well, I, I know I'll just do everything in one day and do see it all that's on like. Thursday, do it all on Wednesday. Yeah, do Wednesday, it all on Wednesday yeah. and then take two days off. <laughs> and I sort of plateaued, I think, a little bit of my training. Mm -hmm. And so I did that. I had a good weekend then and then I came back and then went back to my old routine and that Tuesday night I'm like whoa I feel quite a bit stronger now and so that's where I got this idea that every now and then at least just have this go big day where you kind of do everything in one day yeah and now I feel like I do those more often in large measure because I feel like it fits my schedule better mm -hmm. I think many people try to get in say three or four or five climbing days a week where they're doing maybe 90 minute workouts or something like that. And for me, I feel like it takes so long for me to warm up uh, sure. as I get older. And then it also takes so much longer to recover after mm -hmm. any kind of training mm -hmm. that it's almost more convenient to have those big days and then take more time off. So fewer training days a week, but have those training days be larger. Yep. And I feel like that's very much different from what I hear, um, from what you guys are doing and from what all the other coaches are suggesting. Mm -hmm. This idea of having a big day where you really go hard. Um, and I would say, I understand where you guys are coming from. And let me just preface this by saying that I, I really appreciate the expertise that you folks are bringing to this. I really appreciate the kind of level of homework you're doing, the amount of scientific investigation you're doing. Um, I think that's awesome. I think that's great. Yet at the same times, when I look at some of the arguments for not doing what I'm doing, um, I don't find those arguments compelling. So for example, let's say on endurance training, there's always this motto, which is training to failure is failing to train. Like if you really right. push into that. Which I completely zone. disagree with when okay. it comes well, to good. endurance okay. training, well, good, by good. the way. Because I feel like, you know, one of the arguments is, well, when you get into that redlining zone and you're really struggling and the lactic acid is really in your body you start to lose your technique yeah that's where it all falls apart yeah and i'm feeling like well that's true which means you want to get yourself in that kind of state on a regular basis and work on having good te technique when you're in that state yeah and so i like for example on the treadwall really believe in pushing super hard and getting to where i'm really pumped out and i'm thinking i just can't go on i can't make another reach and then it's like, oh, but just keep trying. And so, oh, I can make another reach in this state. And so it's kind of, it's, it's, it seems inappropriate to say you're expanding your comfort zone. It's more like 
you're becoming more tolerant of the uncomfort of or the, the discomfort, discomfort zone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of good climbers are able to do. I sort of call it pink lining, right? Where they're mm. not red lining quite yet. They're mm -hmm. not out. Um, but boy, the lactic acid is there and they're definitely feeling weaker and their core is starting to give out, but they are able to maintain and they're able to get higher and they're able to get to a rest and they're able to recover. So this idea that you don't want to put yourself in that state because you're going to lose your technique, I don't find that a compelling argument because I think you want to train having good technique in that state. Yeah. I mean, another argument is, well, look, if you go those big days, if you do a lot in one day, it's going to take you longer to recover. You know, yes, of course, that's true, right? I mean, if, if you use that philosophy that you should try to minimize the recovery time, then we should only be training for five minutes, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's, that's going to have the least sure. amount of recovery time. So I think that... Um, my perspective is, and I, and I would just say, you know, for people who feel like they've maybe plateaued, um, just try that every now and then, just once in a while, have a big day if you can do it. Maybe people, a lot of people's schedules can't allow for that. Yeah. And I think that's the important part of it. Um, a lot of people's schedules don't. And, that's right. And that's the main deciding factor for me in how to build people's training schedules right. is what their schedule is. I'm not trying to take over their lives, you know? Sure. Um, if you have the time to do that, and especially if you're a weekend warrior who gets two days a week and, and those are your days, you need to put in as much work as you can in those two days. Yep. So if you've only trained to be able to operate for an hour at a high level, you're not going to get much done on the weekends. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the other sort of one of the other arguments, if you can do it, if you can have a big training day, then I feel like on the days where you're at the cliff and you're trying to perform, you can go longer. Right. It seems like a lot of people, their body is accustomed to at most maybe two hours of exertion at the gym. And so when they get to the cliff, they warm up, they give their project a burn. If they don't send it on that try, they're typically pretty diminished for their second try and then they're mm -hmm. done. Yeah. Whereas I feel like I was like, for example, this thing up at uh, Clark I just did, I, I was able to give that three tries a day. And my third try was often not bad. It was right. it was OK. So, you know, even at four o'clock or five o'clock in the evening, I've been able to send things because my body's kind of accustomed to that mm -hmm. those big days. So there's something to be said for that. But I also understand um, all the scientific research which says focus on particular areas at particular times and not have the bigger workouts. Yeah. And what I you know, I mentioned earlier that the science necessarily so leaves out a lot of the variables and I think that's one of them you know maybe it is more efficient and better to do these really short training sessions all the time if you take the variable out of play that mm -hmm. that's not how you're performing in most cases and most people don't have the time right. to to look at performance in that way you right know? that sort of session works for me pretty well now mm -hmm. because most of my climbing days for the last season or two have been just little half days you know i'll drive out try right. boulder for a few hours come home and do work or i'll drive up to wild iris for a couple of hours come home and do work um, so the short sessions work for me right now sure but when i was a weekend warrior at the red I did big mega sessions because I knew I wanted my whole day to count. Right. You know, and, and I'm in complete agreement with you about the endurance training. Drew Mack and I just put out a, a training program where he's kind of the celebrity, sure. you know, coach that's involved and, and he's in the group chat with everybody talking about the training and it's very much focused on 
being able to keep yourself together when you're redlining. Yeah. Um, because that's what Red River climbing is. It is, you indeed. Know? It's kind of like... And, uh, and a lot of climbing. And a lot of climbing, indeed. And I feel like another thing I would do, and I don't think there's anybody who would disagree with this, but I do feel like not enough climbers train resting. Mm-hmm. So Agreed. For example, for sure. um, you know, I'll get on the tread wall and I'll max out and then I'll try to stop it and shake out while there. And then even if I feel like, wow, I can't really do much more, then I'll run over to the campus board and get on maybe a medium-sized rung with my feet on. With your feet on, yeah. And try to get it back. And I can tell a real difference. When I'm fit, I've, I can just barely hold on. Mm-hmm. And within maybe a minute, I feel like, wow, I've gotten pretty much a lot yep. of it back. Whereas I'm, when I'm not fit, I just don't feel like I'm getting anything back. And I see so many climbers at the cliff, I see them get to what I think of as a pretty good rest, and it's quite clear they're just not getting anything back because right. they don't know how to flush lactic acid out of their system. Mm-hmm. And so actually making that a part of the training routine, training resting. Another thing that is just kind of a fun experiment to do, I would suggest people try, is when you're doing that, let's say you're on that campus rung with your feet on and you feel like, okay, I'm shaking out, you know, put a crash pad behind you and just start to release Mm. your grip because you think well I'm really just hanging on all I need to and you'd be amazed how much you can relax your grip and still stay on yeah you know and and so you don't realize you're using 20 30 percent more than you need to use when you think you're resting to Mm -hmm. hang on that you could be using the skin to do a lot more work for you in that situation yeah we do a lot of recovery on the wall recovery practice um as opposed to just calling it training because I think it's Yes, it's a, a physiologic response and adaptation, but there's also a skill involved in understanding it and knowing it and being mentally okay with, you know, I got here, I'm totally redlined, my elbows are up by my ears, but I know I can get it back. And, yeah. And staying there, I see a lot of people who don't understand how to rest. They may have arc trained for the last six weeks, you right. know, consistently, but they get pumped, they get to a rest, and 30 seconds later, they're like, I gotta go, I can't get anything back. Exactly. You know? Or they'll just fall out yeah. of the rest. Right. They get, yeah. It's just getting taxed by yeah. the rest. Yeah. So. And that's something you can train. That's what's, that's something. And I think that when you're in that situation, you train to recover. I actually think it improves the vascularization in your, in mm-hmm. your forearms, too. Yeah. I can tell a big difference when I'm training that way. Um, how much quicker I can flush out the lactic acid and how, how I just get more veins in my forearm in that situation. So yeah, I I think that's something that's really important. Um, but I'm kind of curious. So where are people now? Just out of curiosity, in terms of the periodization, are people still doing that? Well, it, it sort of depends on how you define periodization. Mm-hmm. Um, linear periodization, I think, is probably what you're referring to, and that has pretty much been thrown out the window okay. to some degree. Um, I don't even think linear periodization in climbing is actually even fully possible. Mm -hmm. I think the Anderson brothers came the closest with their rock prodigy program. Um, but you're always going to be taxing other energy systems while you're climbing. Right. Um, but there is sort of a push toward nonlinear periodization, which is more like what you're talking about. And periodizing just refers to switching things up and not right. doing the same things all the time. You know, that doesn't have to mean you're focused on one energy system. That's more a linear 
periodization. Gotcha. Gotcha. Nonlinear is kind of where the push has been. And honestly, I think that's where most climbing training has sort of, sort of fallen in to place over the last bunch of years. And nonlinear means you're doing all those several energy systems during the same week, right? Sometimes during the same workout. That's sort of what I'm talking about to some degree. Yeah. And I think that's a really smart approach. Yeah. Um, and even though, you know, I think our programs that we've been writing for years are much more a nonlinear periodization type of plan. People get really confused when you call this a strength phase or an endurance mm-hmm. phase. And we might be focused on strength for these four weeks, but there's also going to be an endurance element or at the very least a skill element of keeping your technique together when you're right. fatigued, you know, right. something like that, that translates directly to endurance. Yeah, so. that makes sense. That completely makes sense. I mean, I guess one of the other areas where I'm kind of a, a little bit different from most people is I do believe in, I've I think there are a lot of areas where you're different than most people. Let's <laughs> That's probably true. I just did this podcast. I did it with uh, Chris's and uh, yeah, I just listened Andrew's to their podcast, and so I, I use this line: "More is more." Yep. Because um, I feel like in my training background, when I feel like I've often gotten the most gain is just when I up the ante in terms of how much I was doing in terms of training. Yep. And you know, I think there's almost this sort of inconsistency or maybe double standard you read a lot of training books or uh, training articles and there's sort of going to be a section that says well no really less is more you know you shouldn't overdo it you shouldn't push beyond a certain point um and then you'll thumb through to some other chapter and there'll be a story in there about well what made this person really stand apart from everybody else is they stayed in the gym for another hour right when everybody right. else was done or yep. there's going to be a discussion of well this person had this really gnarly traverse and they just added two more holds at the mm-hmm. end of it or every time or they 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 took the holds off and put harder holds made on slightly worse made it slightly yeah. worse and i'm like well which is it right because you're saying over here well the people that are really going to have the benefits aren't really going very hard they're not really pushing it and then you're over here saying it's these people who are really pushing the limit and really adding on to the training that are seeing the benefits so i it's i feel like a little bit of inconsistency there and in my own experience i feel like when i've wanted to have a really good um phase i i it's often been due to having a training period where i was going at it pretty hard mm-hmm. and, and including some big days Yeah. And I think that's, I think that again comes back to the, and, and, you know, I I know it sounds like I'm harping on the science and the research here, but, and I do value that massively. um, But I think it assumes that climbing is just a physical adaptation and, and that's not the case. Right. You know, if you don't know how to do a big day, if you've never had to, to manage yourself through, through a big day, I don't want the one day this month that I get to climb on my project to be the day I have to figure that out. Right. Exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, uh, I think that you want to be as intelligent and smart as you, as you can be when you go about it. Um, and just to be clear, I'm not, I'm not going to like send the, the Bill Ramsey (laughs) death workouts to, (laughs) to a new climber that should say, be the very first thing they do when they're trying to get up that five eight they should be doing 10 hour training days by god no no i totally understand and that, that's part of it as well is that you know what works for what's a what's a good piece of advice for coaching somebody or, or training somebody when they're getting into it for the first time and they're trying to do their first 512 it's obviously going to be a different story mm-hmm. than what's 
what someone like Adam Andre is doing, who was yep. doing these insane three a day workouts. that yeah. I don't know how any human being could sustain. It's and interesting it's, to hear you say that because I've said the same thing about you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but I mean, I think the difference is that, um, well, first off, he knows what he's doing and I don't. But it is the case that your body just adapts yep. and your body adapts and it can it can wind up over time um, having the capacity to sort of take on more abuse like that. And you kind of got to keep raising the bar. I mean, I do feel like the one sort of training principle that we all can agree upon is that training comes about through incremental increasing of difficulty. Yep. That's really what you're trying to do is get some kind of a workout in where you can kind of trick your body. Yeah, ask into the adapting. body to adapt exactly. a little bit at a time. And your body's gonna resist that. It's gonna try to resist that, so sometimes you gotta push it a little bit mm -hmm. more. And a big day kind of shock loads your body, and it's like, oh wow, I guess I really need to sort of get after it now Yeah. in terms of growing some tendons and muscles and things like that. But, uh, but you know, that takes years and years and years to get to that certain point. So, yeah, definitely. for sure. Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier that you just did this thing up at Clark, Jumbo Pumping Hate. Right. And I distinctly remember the magazine cover yeah. with Randy with this orange sunlit stunning. face. You know, looked amazing, like dream root. Completely stunning. And just recently when you were on the Run Out podcast with Chris and Andrew, um, Andrew read a quote from a piece that you had written from the day that you sent Golden right. for his right. site. And the, the quote is, the rarest of times when luck, skill, and some degree of gumption combine to create what is best described as a fleeting but undeniable moment of grace. What I want to know is how much of each of those went into jumbo pumping hate, luck, skill, and some degree of gumption. All three, without a doubt. Do you think there was a, a split? Was it even amounts of each? Well, Is let's it? take each one. So let's say gumption. Um, I mean, I'm now 59 um, and I have a hip that was going out basically. Mm -hmm. And this is, as you know, not in the most convenient right. location for a sport cliff. It's right. a pretty epic approach. It's not rifle. So it was really kind of a, took a certain amount of chutzpah on my part, I suppose, to think, oh, I should try to climb this thing now because mm -hmm. it's a freaking hard route. It's super long and <clears> just getting there is a bit of an epic. Um, did but, you feel like because of the hip, the clock was ticking even faster and you had to get it done before? Well, surgery? I did it about a week before surgery was right. scheduled. So I, I did not have any expectation of doing it. Okay. I mean, so that's the luck part. Yeah. It was in June. Usually it's too hot to climb up there. It just happened to be this unusually cool day. There was a really good breeze and, um, all the variables that you think are important were is really low humidity were right there and it was, it was just mm -hmm. the perfect day for it. Um, and then, you know, obviously 43 years of climbing experience helps. And, um, the way I've been going about this, and I think there's something to be said for this when you're, if you're projecting something near your house is I believe that there's something to be said for training while you're projecting. Yeah. So I believe that a lot of times when I've done a, a long project, I get weaker. Um, except for maybe the very specific moves that are on the project. Yeah, and you called this something project atrophy or yeah, something, something like that. I think I, yeah, it's like projecting atrophy or something along yeah. those lines. And so you want that, you want to avoid that. So I was trying to make a point when I was getting to where I could one hang and I was working on low points, um, but I didn't feel like I was quite ready to do it 
where I would actually train a little bit in the morning before going there. Not mm-hmm. a big fingerboard workout, but some, you know, weighted, weighted dead hangs for seven seconds with maybe, you know, minute rest, two minutes yeah. rest. So you're sort of trying to train the, the things you're not really hitting when you're working exactly. on a project. Trying to maintain you know, the If it's a short, savage thing, maybe you're not doing yeah. those heavy hangs in the morning. That's right. That's right. But that's something that I feel like this is more of an endurance route. And mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> so I wanted to do that, but it was tough to do it after climbing because there's a big days up there. So I'm like, well, I'll just do it in sure. the morning and I'll just accept the fact that I'll get up there in a diminished state. And then I would, as I felt like I was getting a little closer on it, I would start cutting that out. I would mm-hmm. do less and yeah. less. And I would start then feeling a little stronger while I was up there. The day I did it, I mean, if you'd asked me, you think you're going to do it today? I'm like, no, I would say I've got maybe a 5% chance. So I was just only, even when you don't feel like you can do something, you can have a pretty good day if you feel good about your effort. So I just thought, you know, I want to have a really good, good effort up here. I did it, I did it with a one hang. And the other key thing that uh, I think is really critical that the skill comes in maybe is, is I changed my beta. Um, there was a way you could climb into the crux um dyno this is a route that was originally 13d but then a really big hold fell off and mm-hmm. um i think everybody thought it had to be glued back on chris linder went up there and did I, the dyno i remember I, talking to chris about yeah. this actually yeah, yeah and he's like no it's still possible um but now it had a new crux basically because this is now something you'd have to do that was a crux then you still had to do the old crux mm-hmm. and with a mediocre rest in between and uh, I was just really having a hard time with that dyno. I was, I, even when I would hit it, I was so stretched out that my pinky would come off the hold that you're dynoing from. Right. And uh, so that was just a tough dyno for me. And, but I could do it off the dog, but it just seemed climbing into it was taking something out of me. But there's a usual, there's a normal way most people do it. And this guy I was working on it with, Nate Rasnick, was doing it a different way where you get this undercling and you reach really high and you get the crimp you dyno off of and then you bump again. And when I'd first gotten on the route, I tried it and that, I was just too stretched out. I couldn't do it that way. I just felt like that would be too taxing. So I worked out a different sequence that involved more moves. So about two weeks before I did it, though, I was up and I thought, well, you know, I'm quite a bit stronger now. Let me try it the way Nate's been doing it and other people do it. And it's like, oh, I can do it this way now. Mm-hmm. And that made a huge difference. That actually got me into the Crux Dino feeling 5% fresher, maybe. Mm-hmm. And that was what made the difference. And so... Uh, How many tries had you put in roughly to that point where you changed your beta? Hundreds. I mean, maybe not hundreds, but around 100. I mean, I've been trying it... I started getting on it in the, uh, well, I tried it all spring. We started climbing on it in March or April. I tried it the previous fall and I tried it the previous spring pretty sincerely. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how many times we we're going up there, maybe two days a week. So, and two tries a day at that time. So I've been, I've been training a lot. Yeah. But this is something I've always learned about every big project sure. is these routes have all these amazing little secrets mm-hmm. and you have to interrogate them and you have to try new things. And you have to always be experimenting and don't get stuck in your ways. And I wouldn't, I'd be surprised for most of the big projects I've done if, if it wasn't the case that the time I sent it, I wasn't, <clears throat> usually I'm trying something new on that attempt. Yeah. Even if it's just a very slight variation on how I put my foot on. Yep. And, and it's, you know, because when you think about it, I think I said this um, to the 8A people, but it's basically like, Suppose just a slight tweak in terms of how you put your foot on or which hold you use. Suppose that only gives you half a percentage point in terms of efficiency. 
Well, that's not very much, but if you figure out three or four of those over the course of a week or three or four of those over the course of a couple of weeks, that adds up to two or three percentage points of strength. That's huge. Yeah. That's really significant. So that's what I believe you need to do. And the other thing about always searching, always trying to find things that are different, always trying to find the most efficient way of doing something is it keeps it interesting. It's once you start just stuck to what you're going to do and you stick to your beta and you don't try anything new, it becomes work. Yep. It's drudgery. Whereas if you're always experimenting, always trying to learn something new, um, it's sort of like a scientific problem or some sort of research problem. It's something that keeps it fascinating. And I find that intellectual process of always trying to work out the most efficient beta, I find that to be really interesting and really enjoyable. So I think most people give up too soon in terms of trying to tweak their beta and trying to, yeah. try, trying to find things. Yeah, people fall into the standard beta and yeah. this is the only way, or they get really attached to their solution exactly. that they've come up with. You know, just recently I, I did a 13D at Wild Iris that everybody takes the crux hold the same way. Yeah. And I, I can take it that way when I do the 13B and it works for me. When I do the D with the different start, it didn't work for me. Sure. And I changed the way I grabbed the hold and I tried the route a couple of times that way. And I really liked the way I was holding the hold now. And then I realized, oh, I'm holding it differently. It changes my body position. Sure. Now I can use this big foot that I couldn't figure out how to use before. And now all of a sudden the crux move becomes a move I'll probably never drop again. Yeah, exactly. Because it just fit right into my style, my technique. It's something I can lock in. Yeah. You know, I would have to get there devastatingly pumped to not be able to do the move now. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, but it was because of being open-minded and willing to explore and interrogate. I like that word, uh, in, interrogate that section. And Absolutely, yeah. I feel like it's just amazing how many little teeny adjustments you can make yeah. that add up to getting yourself to where you need to be and feeling mm -hmm. just that little bit fresher where you can do it. I mean, this change in my beta enabled me to do that dyno and then actually feel pretty good getting to the rest. The rest was, um, it's a pretty good hole, but you, you know, you're, you're close to 45 degrees. And so the funny thing about it was there's a heel hook you can use. It's sort of an inside heel hook where you just kind of lay your heel on this, the hold you dyno to that's right. good hold. But with my hip, it just it's like the worst position to be right, <laughs> to be in. Right. And usually you get that. And I was also kind of ham hawking this spike that's there that just kind of digs into your yep. wrist. Basically, I had tape on my wrist and just sort of like, okay, this is really the most <laughs> unpleasant right, rest right. I can imagine. But after, I am kind of after having there. to hike up there yeah, with the, yeah. the hip. Yeah. But I just made myself stay there for a while and uh, felt like I got a lot back and then made it through the second crux and that was it. So nice. I was absolutely shocked. I was I was probably the most <clears throat> surprised I've ever been doing a route where I just thought, well, this is just going to be fun. I'll see how I can get, how far I can get. Mm. Um, and the next thing I know, I'm clipping the anchor and I just couldn't believe it. Do you always have a project like that that's driving you? You mentioned earlier that your whole fascination with this kind of started with the Marine Corps athletic tests or yeah. whatever. Um, is that always the case? No, I like, for example, when I heal up and I'm going to start climbing again, I will go through a phase where I'm just having a good time. And um, usually then when I'm in that phase trying to do low end, maybe mid range 513s that I can tick pretty quickly. And I would say that's a good chunk of my climbing career is doing that. Um, and that's 
the way I think most people approach climbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know a lot of coaches suggest, or there some people have suggested you really shouldn't be on any, anything that takes you more than four or five tries. Right, which is and crazy talk, I don't, frankly. Well, I mean, th- there's something to be said for that sure, phase, having sure. that phase of climbing. Yep. It's just that with me, I get to a point where I start to become a little bit bored with that mm-hmm. because nothing's really in doubt. I know I'm going to get up this. So then I'm like, wow, I really want to test myself. I really want to push myself to just see what I'm mentally and physically capable of doing. And so that's how I've wound up doing these big projects. Um, I think the first time I really did that was maybe the first 514 I did was Batman at Smith. Um, and then, you know, doing something like Golden uh, that took a number of seasons. Um, Reverse Polarity took a couple seasons. Um, those are all endeavors where you go into a different phase and now you're in a phase where you're really digging deep and you're really trying to see what you're capable of and, it, and you know it's going to be work and you know it's going to be a lot of effort you know there's going to be a tremendous amount of failure there's going to be tons of frustration but you know all that going into it and yeah. you know if it was easy everybody would be doing it right so you just sign up for that and you recognize that it's going to be a tremendous amount of sacrifice and a real challenge but if you can get it done, it's also going to be tremendously gratifying. And that's mm-hmm. that's the way it is. So I kind of believe in mixing it up that way. I kind of believe in... Um, How often do you mix it up that way? Well, I mean, after... you send a project frankly, and then go into that After mode? I did Golden, I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm done with project. Right. I remember reading <laughs> you saying <laughs> right. this. Yeah. Enough of this nonsense. And I knew it was bullshit when I read it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I thought that I was enjoying climbing. But, you know, this thing in, that Randy had done is had always been in the back of my mind. And there was a really fun, fun crew going up to Clark, um, Kenny Barker and, mm-hmm. and um, a few other folks, Nate and, and, uh, and uh, Seth Robinson and Gary and these other guys were all going up there. And it was a good crew, really good people. I'm like, well, I kind of want to check that out. So I went up, I think, in 2015 or 16, maybe. And I was kind of blown away by how tough the hike was. I was like, "Ooh, wow, this is this is not rifle where you're pulling up to the project wall. This is yeah. different." Um, but I did see the wall, and I was pretty blown away by the quality of the wall and how it looked and how that line looked. I didn't climb on it that trip, but I was sort of like, eh, "Maybe down the road, I should give this thing a go." And so Nate was working it. He talked me into going up there with him, and um, I'm like, "Yep, yeah, I'm pretty pretty sold. This is this is pretty impressive." Mm-hmm. So if I could maybe just one more time <laughs> you know, trying yep. to get up this yep. thing and they got sucked right back in and this so. won't be the last one who knows i'm not i'm never saying never i'm pretty sure there's going to be more <laughs> what this is an interesting thing that i was thinking about last night um you've had these like multi-year epic projects mm-hmm and you've done how many 514s now? 26 or like something? like 26. 26 it depends on how you count certain things. Sure. I mean, I'm like, I don't mm-hmm. usually count God's own stone. I just feel like that's probably more like 13D. Gotcha. But uh, <laughs> and then the, the rates and the ratings in rifle are constantly changing. Every new guidebook, so you yeah. never know what that's rated. But yeah, uh, so something like 26, 27. And you've, like you know, Batman, you did before you were 40. All the rest mm-hmm. have come after 40. Correct. With all those multi-year epics in there, the math doesn't work out all that well. So so there must be yeah. some in there that went down really fast. Yeah. So I've had a few, quite a few 514s that I've done in just a couple, like about a month of work or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I've done several around here pretty quickly. Uh, I had one summer when I turned 45. It was a good summer in rifle where I think I did 
eight 13 D's and three 14 A's or something like that. It, wow. was, it was pretty fit then. Yeah. Um, so some of them have gone down. That's good news for me. Quicker. I turned 45. There you go. Year, so. All right. Well, that's like my best year ever. So there you go. <laughs> uh, so I just, yeah, some of them, some of them gone pretty quickly. Uh, I mean, you know, you feel like if you live in a place like this, if you're taking two or three months to do a 514 and you can climb 514 here year round, mm-hmm. that means you can get four or five done in a year. Right. So you climb like the Hodesy has a really long season. Assuming you're jumping from project to project. Yeah. And, yeah. But I mean, those yeah. are projects. <laughs> those aren't mega projects. Those are right. kind of like, well, I've done everything else at this cliff. Now I guess I need to do this thing. Yeah. And then they find ah, I can do this in a couple months worth of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have seasons that you try to leave for projecting do you wait for better conditions because you you talk a lot about you know training and training on your project and training concurrently with your project so so do you leave seasons like this is the best conditions that are going to be at this crag i'm going to wait sure like for this route of a clark i knew that the spring would be better than the fall and I knew that, uh, you know, coming around April, I'd wanted to be peak fitness. So I had spent most of the winter training for this route. Mm-hmm. And that um, yeah, paid off. If I know I've got a project coming up of that nature, then I'm going to um, focus on training for that season. But at the same time, I'm still going out and having sure. fun. I'm going out and doing some climbs. I did two or three 513s this winter at the VRG I'd never done before. Mm-hmm. So that was good fun. Um, so you're kind of getting out, you're doing some things, but nothing really, really taxing because you're mostly focused on training for this, this one particular time. What's the longest you've gone without a big project? Just having fun and climbing easier things. Yeah. Probably a couple of years, two or three years, something like that. I mean, this, these mega projects, I've only been really doing that sort of stuff in the last, Mm -hmm. since I turned 50, it seems like those Mm -hmm. are windows. And it's just because I still want to maintain climbing these routes and I'm just getting weaker and more decrepit as I get older. Um, (laughs) Well, I ask because we, you know, we hear about the big sins. We mm -hmm. hear about the big epics. And I think a lot of people get caught into this pattern of, I have to go big project to big project to big project because that's what all of the successful climbers do right but i think that's only what we hear about from the successful climbers we don't hear about the months and months or even years spent just climbing the those sort of base yeah exactly and having fun and doing different styles of climbing having a bouldering season Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. one nice thing about this area is that you have so many different styles of climbing so i can boulder in the wintertime if i want to focus on that there's these amazing multi-pitch climbs and i Mm -hmm. haven't done nearly as many of those as i'd like to yeah so that's a whole facet of climbing that's available here that you can change things up that way so yeah i think you know how many sports how many professional sports are year round where they're doing it year round. Right. So you got to change it up. You got to yeah. take a break every now and then. Um, and you've got to sort of do something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you hear about all these, these projects that people are doing. I think some professional climbers are, are really good about doing this. I know Jonathan, for example, has these big projects that he does, but at the same time he mixes it up and has a good time and right. takes breaks and things he does like that. There's a lot that. of on-siding days. There's a lot of on-siding days and things like that. So yeah. yeah. It's easy to get confused when you look at Jonathan's on-siding days because <laughs> they're 514 on-siding yes, days. I know, exactly. you know? That'd be like my so. best day ever. <laughs> right. It's like, this is him taking it yeah. easy. Right. Yeah. So it's easy to get confused, but if you keep it in perspective, yeah, you know, exactly. Those exactly. aren't projects for him. No, that's exactly right. He's taking it easy during that phase. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned bouldering. You're not known as a boulder. Right. Um, well, and I've had a hard time. I've, I've decided, and I don't know why I do this. This is just 
my nature is to like buck the the trend a little bit and and I've focused mostly on bouldering for the last few years and and would love to climb my first V12 in my 40s sometime. Sure. Um, because I just don't hear that much about it. I just recently talked to Volker Schaffel, German doctor. He did his first V12 just recently in his 50s. Um, wow. But I can't find many people who are trying hard boulders at an at a later stage. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I bouldered up to V11 um, in my 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't focused on bouldering for the last year or two, but I, you know, it's, it's, it's so enjoyable just to go out for a couple, three hours by yourself. You don't have to worry about getting a partner. Yeah. You can go out and just, if you, you know, if it's a, I look for very specific sorts of boulder problems though. I, you know, with my hip going bad right. and feeling a little more decrepit, I, I really try to find things where I'm not getting too high off the ground. Sure. And, uh, since I'm more of a root climber than a boulder, I try to do hard boulder problems that have a lot of moves in mm-hmm. it. So does your training stay roughly the same? When no, you're maybe be on more focused on contact strength and core and things like that. Cause a lot mm-hmm. of the boulder problems are pretty steep. Um, but I often feel like some of the best training days I've had has just been trying a boulder problem over yeah. and over, especially one where I can get pretty deep into it, where I can do maybe eight or nine moves. Yeah. That's a great training session. We just become mm-hmm. obsessed with trying to get up this thing. Um, yeah, I, th- I think actually that was one of the reasons I had a decent, sport climbing season this year no thank you (laughs) and uh i I think that's why i had a decent sport climbing season this year is because i was doing these two hour solo sessions on a hard boulder um, and those training days ended up transferring really well to like rodeo wave or wild iris exactly you know 15 moves total or something like yeah that. exactly yeah. if you're trying mm-hmm. for example to do a say a powerful pocketed limestone route up at potency mm-hmm. you couldn't do better for training for something like that than going to flagstaff and trying to do one of the hard problems on the mars roof you right. know with v11 right. or v10 there so i'd often do something like that it's just kind of that pocket training and getting that core up on a roof like that you bishops four and a half hours away from here and mm-hmm. there's, there's so many good uh bouldering there's so much good bouldering there and what's nice about Bishop is I can go up and spend a day bouldering and spend a day fly fishing. Oh, yeah. So, yeah you should Lord come up Owens. to Lander. And I, sh- I definitely want to come up there. I've heard really good things about the fly fishing up there. I've, yeah. I have never been to Tensleep, believe it or not. I'd really oh, like to get up go. there. Yeah. I'd like, and I heard there's really good fly fishing there, too. Yeah. If you come through Lander, let me know. You okay. got a, you got a room good. there. Sounds good. Do you fly uh, fish? And a tour. No, but I really want to. I've said that on this podcast a number of times, I think. But yeah. it's something I really want to learn to do. It's almost the perfect rest, rest day activity. Mm. Because it's not too taxing, but it's super fun, and it's something about just standing in the middle of a river, yeah, sort of just you get in to this be in beautiful cool area. Yeah, it's really great. Yeah, it's really great. So with you know with with big projects like like Jumbo Pumping Hate or like Golden, um, do you em- still employ or do you still envision your concept of the pain box? Is yeah, that something you regularly tap into. Yeah. Um, so do people know what that is? I mean, the way I like to think about it is it's a I matter- would love to make a, an animation. Oh, I have, I'll works. have something I'll send you. You can put on your website. Okay. Um, but basically it's this idea of pain reallocation. Right. Right. And so what I realized when you're, when you're trying to get yourself to train and you're trying to do the hard work and you're trying to drop a couple pounds or something like that is it, it there's different kinds of suffering. There's the kind of suffering 
that's associated with all this effort and all this hard work and mm -hmm. all this sacrifice. And then there's the kind of suffering that's associated with failure. Right. And what I've come to realize is that there's just inverse relationship between two. I mean, it's no different than just that motto, no pain, no gain, basically. But it's yeah. another way of visualizing it. So I have this idea of a box and you have the one kind of pain, which is the suffering from hard work and sacrifice on one side. And you have the other kind of pain, which is the pain associated with frustration of failure on the other side. And there's a bar <laughs> separating the two. And what you want to try to do, what most people would like, is, is less of the frustration, failure pain, but you recognize that the only way you can get that is by increasing the quantity, moving the bar to the right. Right. And the outside on, on the, dimension of yeah, the box it's is fixed. It's fixed. Yeah, that's kind yeah. of a stoic perspective. Mm -hmm. Life is going to suck in one way or another. You just got to figure yeah. out which way it's going to suck. Yeah. So on one side, it's I need to eat fewer donuts. And on the other side, it's, I'm not going to send my project. Exactly. Yeah. And you want to push the bar. So there's less of, I need to eat fewer donuts. Well, no, you want to push the bar in such a way. So there's less of, I'm not sending my project frustration. Sure, sure, sure. So to do that, you need more of the not eating the donuts, right. longer training right, right, sessions, right. sacrifice, because it's just this geometric sort of idea that the, the, the one quantity is going to increase to make the other quantity get smaller, the other quantity of suffering. And there's a, similar happiness different types of pleasure mm -hmm. box as well I, i'll send this to you i think i've I've seen the image yeah i would love to see an animation of <laughs> that would it be working perfect. yeah know? it would be good the guy Actually, eating donuts cartoon. over here and guess, the, the really depressed guy over here from not sending his project yeah, again it'd be perfect you know? exactly so mm -hmm. that's just something that is everywhere in my life i mean it's in my academic life it's mm -hmm. in my you know everything in my life basically adopts that sort of perspective and because I feel like the reality is when most people get frustrated because they're not seeing success, maybe they've shot their goals too high, maybe they've aimed too high, but a lot of times it's just because they're, they're not making the kind of sacrifices they need to make to reach that kind of success. Right. So it's there in my training, it's there in my attempts on a route, it's there in my academic life. Um, it's kind of there all the time as just a sort of perspective on how to go about living, essentially. Yeah, I actually just sent the image of your pain and pleasure box to my wife this morning because I was looking at it and in the pleasure box, there's you know, the pain from, um, I can't remember the others, but one of them is screwing off. Yeah, you exactly. You use the word screwing off. and. My mother-in-law is always telling me I don't screw off enough. Like, you need <laughs> nice. to screw off more. And I'm like, I don't understand. I don't That's compute. That's usually not a piece like, of advice I, most people I get. don't get it. Why would I want to do that? So There's it, something to be said for screwing off every now and then. Yeah, for sure. No doubt about it. Yep. But generally speaking, if you feel like you want to look at, when you look at the athletes who are successful, mm -hmm. when I look at the climbers who are really successful, or the athletes in other sports that are really successful, yep. they're the ones that are doing the hard work. And they're the ones that are making the sacrifice and they just understand what that's involved. I mean, some people are just naturally gifted. They don't have to work too hard, but most of us aren't that way. Um, and so to make that success, to get that success, it's going to require hard work, sacrifice. And this pain box thing is just a kind of imagery to help bring that home, basically. Yeah. You just said something really interesting. I was going to wrap it up because you were saying this so eloquently, but you just said some people are really talented and gifted and don't have to work very hard for it along the continuum of personal success 
those people are still not at the at the limit of their personal success if they're not working exactly very they're hard underperforming. So that's right. Yeah. Do you see? And we don't have to name names here, but do you see high level climbers who you think to yourself? I wonder what would happen if that person had my gumption. Sure. You know, I think, I, I think, to your original I think quote. that there are probably people who are just incredibly naturally mm-hmm. gifted who um, are underperforming. Mm-hmm. I think that's the way to put it. If you look at what, let's say, a professional athlete does that is making it in the Olympics in, a, in a, something like swimming and the kind of effort and work they put into it, and they're, you know, to get to where they are in that really mature sport. Yeah. And then you look at a much more immature sport like climbing. Um, I think that there are definitely people you can point to. I says, I mean, I shouldn't say this, but I, my hunch would be that because climbing is so immature, there are at least some people who can get by without doing as much work as others because yep. they're just genetically gifted. Mm-hmm. But um, in a sense, they're underperforming because they really could be at the very, very, very top if they put in that kind of effort. Now, I think you need to be careful though here because let's take someone like Sharma, for example. Which sure. people are tempted to say, well, that guy never trains. And, you know, yep. obviously he's just naturally gifted and so on. But I think it's that's maybe a little quick because when you look at what Sharma's day would be like, yeah. say, when he was bouldering mm-hmm. and how many tries he would put in and how much yep. effort he would put in or how many tries he'd do on a route and and how hard he'd be going all day. That's trying pretty damn hard. And that is training in a sense. I mean, he's getting really strong fingers, not probably there's a genetic component to that, but just him climbing as hard as he is during the day when he was when he's climbing is a kind of training. Yeah. One of one of the most popular articles on my website is, but Chris Sharma doesn't train or does he? Right. And it's it's essentially laying out this same argument because I've heard it for years. You know, I'm not going to train. Sharma doesn't train. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Sharma also doesn't come into the gym and just socialize for hours. Yeah. And he's trying that V15 27 times in one afternoon. Right. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, you know, if we look at people like Ondra, Seagrist, um, and the, you know, I could name a bunch of them out there. Sam Elias, yep, who who are at the top of their sport, working really, really hard for it. That's right. You know, um, if you're one of those climbers, I'm not going to name names. I have a few in mind, mm-hmm. but if you're one of those climbers who is near the top of your sport and are just coasting along, and those guys are outworking you then you're probably underperforming. Yeah, that's what yeah. I would say. They could do that, yeah, but you know, maybe they don't want to. And yeah, maybe fine. they're happy that's that fine. They're enjoying what they're, what they're doing. That's yep. great. And nobody has, you don't have to try to be the best. Um, but I do have a lot of respect for those who do. Yep. People like Jonathan and Adam. Um, yeah, who try actually, to be their best. Who try to be their best. I mean, I, I really watched Jonathan over the years sort of mature in his training perspective and how much work he puts into it and how much thought he puts into it. Yeah. And I've just really been impressed, and, and, and he's clearly getting the results. Yep, absolutely. Well, Bill, I'm not going to keep you here in Campsite well, 210 any longer. It's been super fun in your campsite here. With, not often you have maid service at the campsite, but that's great. Yeah. Well, yeah. thanks a lot. This has been really fun. I've yeah. enjoyed talking training. Yeah, I'm glad we got to sit down and do it. Yeah. Let's do it again sometime. That'd be great. That'd be super fun. Thanks. Cool. Thanks, Bill. You know, I'm 45 years old now, and honestly, I just don't get the same amount of inspiration, motivation 
from the you know 20 year old crushers as I used to there's definitely still some there but for me looking to guys like like Bill Ramsey who are still out there pushing their limits chasing progression um, at advanced ages sorry Bill but it's true um, that's where I get a lot of the motivation so I'm glad that there are guys like Bill out there doing what they're doing and it's not only his climbing that you know motivates me and inspires me he's he's made big life changes uh, moving from Notre Dame to UNLV for his career in order to be closer to climbing and now he's you know giving back to the community in a different way than his development in the Red River Gorge by being vice president of the Southern Nevada Climbers Coalition which is something that I'm not quite ready for but maybe someday I will be we'll see where that goes and I know I've said this many times on this podcast and I mean it every time but this time I I mean it in an entirely different way I'm really looking forward to the next time I get to sit down with Bill and have a conversation mics on or off doesn't matter hopefully next time it won't be in a sketchy hotel room in the middle of Las Vegas you can find Bill's essay about the pain box that we talk about in the episode right there in your show notes, in your pocket supercomputer. And honestly, I think it's it's a concept that is really universally applicable to climbers. And, and maybe one of the places that most climbers are missing finding their potential. So I would suggest you go take a read and and learn some things from that and pass it around to your friends i think it's really really valuable you can also find a link to the southern nevada climbers coalition and if you are in that area or spend time in that area please consider helping them out all of the climbers coalitions are worth helping out and and is i think something you should do if you're able you can find us at powercompanyclimbing.com You can also find us on the Facebooks, the Instagrams, and the Pinterest at Power Company Climbing. And since you won't find Bill Ramsey on Instagram, I assume that you can't find him on Twitter. And you're definitely not going to find us on Twitter because we don't tweet. We scream like eagles.
I'm a hoarder. I'm a bit of a hoarder. Yeah. <laughs> I don't throw out any of my papers or anything. You just see how cluttered my office is. Yeah, because I've got a little bit of OCD, and so I just do that in my training too. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds good. I'll bring that in. And so then if you do that over 40 years, <laughs> you know, or at least 30 years, it's kind of like it starts to get pretty big, the repertoire. And I do think there's a lot to be said for breaking it up. I feel like now, though, I've done that and I've trained for like only a couple hours and I still need like a day, day and a half rest, I feel like. That's the big thing I've really noticed with age is I've just really become um, diminished in terms of my recovery time. The the formula I use is one day rest now feels like uh, no day's rest used to feel. Mm. And two days rest feels like one day rest used to feel like. And three days rest feels like what two days rest and so on. Yeah. The imagery I always use is like these kids, they've got this team inside their body that's repairing tendons and repairing muscles and they're going around fixing everything after a training session. I've got this one old guy (laughs) who's like sitting there reading a magazine. He's got his bucket and mop. He's like, fuck, I'll get to those tendons tomorrow, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) He's just waiting for retirement, basically. That's kind of imagery I think is like accurate. And so, yeah.